in the Silo, a podcast where three sisters recreate the post-movie theater experience. I'm Frankie. I'm Jessie. And this is Annie. Today, we are wrapping up our series on labor with one of my favorite movies, the 1936 silent comedy, Modern Times, directed and written by Charlie Chaplin in his last appearance as the Little Tramp character. In Modern Times, the tramp is a factory worker who, after a series of miscommunications and mistakes, runs into a young woman, the Gamine, played by Paulette Goddard. And together, they have to face the realities of the Great Depression. But it's fun. This movie was so fun. Yeah, Freddie, this was such a great pick. This is just so perfect. I know that we've been <laughs> waiting to like find a time where we could get Frankie to talk to us about Charlie Chaplin because she's this. Yes, yeah, this theme was perfect. Like this, this is a perfect, perfect yeah. pick. Yeah, good. I'm glad everyone liked it. <laughs> with this labor series, when I picked the theme, I really didn't know what we were gonna kind of go with. But it is kind of funny that we picked two comedies. Yep, and a doc. And so I'm happy that we're back on the comedy. Like <laughs> this will be fun. <laughs> had you guys seen this movie before? I had only seen clips. I had never watched the whole thing altogether. Let me guess. Was it the clip of him as like the cog in the the wheels in the machine? So I'd seen that one. I had seen the one with the food machine, the feeding machine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd seen the roller skating scene. Mm. I'd see, like, I feel, I felt like I had seen the whole movie, just mm-hmm. not all together. Like, all of those things looked so familiar to me. Yeah. Annie, had you seen it before? Yeah, I'd seen it before. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'd seen, I've seen pretty much all of the Charlie Chaplin movies because of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie opens with the shot of all of the sheep. Right. Yes. And then it it fades to the workers coming out. Um, I guess at the train station going into the factory. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Not subtle. No. And there's one black sheep in the in the crowd. Because <laughs> obviously the tramp, right? The tramp is the the, the black sheep. Um, so the tramp is an assembly line worker in this factory. We don't know what they're making. Right. Right. At least when I was thinking about it, I was like, what are they making this factory? They never really tell us. There's that great scene where he gets sucked into the machinery of the factory when he's trying to fix it. And he just like moves his little body, just like moves through the cogs <laughs> and he just comes back out. Right. Yeah. Um, but it was, when I was watching, I was thinking of how similar some of those images are to Metropolis. Right. By Fritz Long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you guys yeah. have any, did you have that feeling too? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The owner of the factory is supposed to look like the mayor in Metropolis, but he's also supposed to look like Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. So there's, that, there's also this idea that the factory is its own city, right? It's its own world that is totally detached from robotic, mechanical, inhuman, until he enters the machinery, right? And then he's the, the human element. But in the factory, the owner can look anywhere. He has eyes everywhere. Very big brother, right? That the screen, wherever he goes, like, the tramp goes to take a bathroom break. 
and is relaxing and like smoke in the bathroom or something and Mm -hmm. the owner is up on the screen and yells at him to get back to work Mm -hmm. and what's cool is that when there's sound and speaking at the start of the film it's the owner through the screen you know yelling at the foreman or yelling at the tramp in the bathroom and then it's also like a pre-recorded voice on a record like and then a radio like every time we kind of hear speaking in the factory it's mediated through a technology yeah so cool it's so cool (laughs) like there's like the pre-recorded we'll we'll talk about the feeding machine but they bring in this feeding machine as like a more efficient way for the humans within this factory to eat while they also work and Mm -hmm. the description of the machine is given to us they take a record, like an LP, and put it on. And he says, hi, like, I'm the mechanical salesman. Like, here's the feeding yeah. machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but even that guy, that voice is, like, disembodied into the technology. Yeah. yeah. As, like, a film that in the transition between silent films and talking pictures, that's such a cool mm-hmm. way to make that transition for Charlie Chaplin is to use that device. Right. I can imagine, you know, in the audience um, at the time, people knew that he was going to be talking or speaking to some degree in this movie. And so every time there's a human voice, right? We're like, oh, is it, is it him? Is it the little tramp who's speaking? <laughs> and it's such a troll. Like, you're traveling such a troll with that, right? We'll talk about that more later because he really, like, Rick rolls the, the Section five, more speed, four, seven. Relief man passing, relief man passing. Metropolis is a 1927 German silent film. Uh, by Fritz Lang, it's science fiction, dystopian. And it's set in this fictional city that is supposed to be very futuristic, right? So it has like these big skyscrapers and art deco sort of architecture. To boil it down, the story is about uh, the exploitation of the workers of the city of Metropolis and the city master and his son and this woman who is trying to bridge the gap between them and support the workers, right? How do you bridge that gap between the workers and the wealthy? Mm -hmm. So then the final line is the mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart. And my take on Metropolis is that it's a visually stunning film, right? And a lot of it's still lost. So there are sections of the film that are just um, stills, photo stills or very low quality recovered footage of the film but it's still incredibly beautiful um it's a dystopia but it kind of ends as a utopia where the workers and the elite class are trying to forge a new future and that seems very um simplistic right especially compared to a movie like modern times and the ending of modern times it's more satire in it's it's not dealing with like a an alternate reality or a different world. It's just dealing with yeah. like a satiric version of 
the current world that we're all living in. Yeah, and I think also, I think Chaplin is purposely putting this film in dialogue with movies like Metropolis. But I think what Chaplin does is he humanizes the characters, right? So when I think of Metropolis, they're all archetypes that are standing in for ideas. And what Chaplin does is the tramp is a deeply human character, even though he is this cartoonish, sometimes caricature of a person, right? There are moments that are deeply humanizing. Same with the gamine, Paulette Goddard's. Mm -hmm. And at the end, the movie is about them, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a movie like Metropolis, which is all about the hordes of people. Right. The main characters in that movie are, you know, the woman, like the saintly woman, and then the son and the mayor. But the workers are all monolithic. What Chaplin does here is the opposite. He's restoring a kind of agency to this character, even though he's operating in a world that doesn't really afford him much agency. Yeah. I mean, like, even in the the factory scenes at the start of the film, right, we see the tramp already differing from the other men on the assembly line. Mm -hmm. And you know that, you expect that. It's a Charlie Chaplin film. Of course, the tramp is going to stand out. But in the assembly line, you're not supposed to, right? You play your role and it affects every other person down the line. Mm -hmm. And he's having a nervous breakdown from doing this repetitive work over and over again when he, you know, leaves and and goes around and starts spraying everybody with oil. Yeah. The scene where he goes back to the assembly line and he's, he's making everybody around him like so irritated and frustrated with him because he's throwing off the whole, all of the work and everything they're expected to do. And when they start to chase him around, he stops them by just turning the line back on. Right. And they can't just walk away. They jump back to the work because it's, they're falling behind in the work. Yeah. And just how everyone else is so committed to, well, I have to keep it going. I have to do my part. And like, yeah, that aspect of it and how he uses that to get out of his out of the scrape. Right. And this is a theme that runs throughout Chaplin's movies. Right. This idea of machinery versus humanity, the individual Mm -hmm. right, versus technology, which is trying to drive out individuality. Um, mm-hmm. and subordinate people. So Charlie Chaplin in 1940 comes out with this movie called The Great Dictator. And it's actually his first talkie. Modern Times has some talking elements, but it's not really a talkie fully. And The Great Dictator is. Uh, Chaplin in The Great Dictator is not exactly playing the tramp, but he's playing a very similar character. The Jewish barber who is trying to survive in Nazi Germany, right, in the 1930s. And the whole film is about how he has a resemblance to a Hitler-esque character and they get switched. And Chaplin ends the film with this really long speech where he's speaking almost directly to the audience, right? It goes totally outside of the reality of the movie that he's created. He's speaking to people. And you have to understand that this movie came out before the United States was involved in World War II, right? It's before Pearl Harbor. We were very isolationist, and so people didn't want to join the war. They wanted nothing to do with it. They wanted nothing to do with Europe and the United States. But Chaplin felt that what was going on in Europe under the Nazis was so egregious. It was such an affront to human dignity, right? So he makes this movie that's speaking out against Hitler. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. 
Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder, don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men, with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery. Fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man. Not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world, that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! That's one of my all-time favorite monologues, like speeches. Oh, yeah. In college, I took an, a Greek prose composition class where we had to, at the end of the semester, pick any speech and translate it into ancient Greek in the style of one of, like, the great orators. <laughs> and so I translated the speech from the great dictator into this an ancient Greek version of it by an orator named Gorgias. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good, and it's also a lot of the words he's using, right? Like, it's concepts and, and things that those philosophers were also thinking about. And so while Charlie Chaplin is very much talking about the industrial age 
And in that film, talking about like the problems with Nazism, it's also tapping into timeless philosophies. It's interesting you say that because I think I was thinking of the speech and just how consistent his ideology and his messaging is across almost all of his movies, right? And it's just this very humanistic approach. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. That is reminiscent of when you read these old <laughs> Greek and Roman speeches, right? There's something that's very self-righteous, but very universal. <laughs> right? Thinking about what it means to be human. and Yeah, exactly. And Charlie Chaplin is one of those. And... I, like he's a modern day philosopher, right? But yeah. he, I mean, one of the best things about modern times is that it showcases his talents across so many different things. You know, as a director, as a performer, with you know all of the themes that he's discussing, as a, a modern day philosopher, as a musician, right? Yeah. We're just seeing just how he was firing on all cylinders when he made Modern Times. And it is funny to think of it as coming out in 1936 when, you know, talkies, talking films had already been happening for a few years. And it was a pretty bold statement to do a silent film and how that might seem like it's not modern, like it's not keeping up with the times, but it still is, right? It's still an incredibly modern film, even at the time. So do you know anything about like the research that he did going into modern times, like about the factories? and about like people on the assembly line? Well, what's interesting is that he was inspired to do this film because he went on a world tour after City Lights mm-hmm. for a year or two, and he met with Gandhi, and they had a talk about the Great Depression and the state of the world economy. So it was that after City Lights, he went on a tour of Europe, right? And he talked to Winston Churchill and Albert Einstein and, and Gandhi, and he wrote it all up in this book called A Comedian Sees the World. Mm-hmm. But part, I think before that, he also toured one of Ford's factories. Yeah. Right? And he, like, actually did see people on the assembly line and people were having nervous breakdowns. Right? I'm pretty sure that that's, like, a huge aspect of what influenced what happens with the tramp in modern times. Right. And why the owner himself is made to look like Henry Ford, right? When he was meeting with Gandhi, Gandhi told Chaplin that he opposes modern technology. And Chaplin didn't really understand why, right? So he started to ask himself, well, why does this great thinker, philosopher, humanist oppose modern technologies, right? And then I think that combined with the experience of going to the factories and seeing the dehumanization of people and the glorification of technology, uh, the mechanization of, of industries and how people get left behind. I could see how that this movie came out of those experiences and how like earlier Tramp movies are again, generally anti-establishment in a lot of ways. The Tramp is inherently an anti-establishment character. Yeah. But this movie really focuses a lot on technology, like this kind of, broader platonic um idea of something as opposed to just the hijinks that a poor man gets into on the street right it's very much a statement on technology and labor going to our theme i do not dream of labor the machine eats him up and spits him out (laughs) 
But then as soon as it's the factory opens back up, he's like, there's work. And he takes the sandwich and he shoves it in his pants and he runs right back to the factory because he needs to work. He needs a job so that they can eat. Yes, exactly. He's combining exactly what Annie was saying, which is this modern philosophy, right, about what it means to be human, while also grounding his stories and things that people would recognize as being relevant to them at the time, right? And I was thinking, what else, what other movies were really popular in the 1930s? My first thought was like Bugsby, Bugsby, blah, 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 blah. Bugsby Berkeley movies, right? These, <laughs> <laughs> these musicals with these opulent, grand musical numbers, right? The women are dressed in diamonds and ostrich feathers, right? And it's just hundreds of thousands of dancers creating these really incredible, over-the-top set pieces. Hundreds of thinking, thousands of dancers? Hundreds of thousands? No, I said hundreds of thousands. <laughs> <laughs> I said hundreds or thousands. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh like, that supply is way too high for the demand. No way. No way. <laughs> But in between, you know, his, his movie before this, right, which is City Lights, which came out in 1931, I believe. Mm-hmm. So five years yeah. before modern times, right? And then there's a gap. In that time, Bugs, oh my God, I can't say. In that time, Bugs the Berkeley <laughs> movies became, is it Bugs No, it's Busby. It's Busby. It's not Busby. <laughs> Wait, what is it really? It's Busby. It's Busby. Like Busby. Busby. Yeah. Busby. Yeah. Busby Berkeley. That's right. I'm going to keep calling him Bugsby because I don't know why that was in my brain, but it was sticking in my brain. So, in between City Lights coming out in 1931 and Modern Times in 1936, Busby Berkeley movies became huge. Right, that's when most of his big movies came out, was in those five years. And there were a lot of other movies coming out, you know, at the same time that were similarly disregarding the lived experiences of people during the Great Depression, right? And they're providing escape. They're providing escape, which is wonderful. But what Chaplin does is he provides escape while also validating the hardships that people were going through. In the Mm -hmm. Great Depression. Yeah. He represents the anxieties of everyday people, right? Not just people who were factory workers or who were losing their jobs in factories, but also, you know, women through the Paulette Goddard character, right? Through children, just and people on strike and Mm -hmm. people disaffected by the Great Depression. And he, he represents that while also giving people an escape, like a cathartic escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's less of a fantasy. Yeah. Like like the big production, the Bugsby Berkeley movies, like a big production <laughs> where you can, <laughs> right? It's it's a different kind of escape. It's more like helping you process your- What were the Bugsby Berkeley? Yeah. What were his movies? He did like Footlight Parade. 
Busley Berkeley. Yeah, he did Footlight Parade. He did The Gold Diggers of 1933. Okay, uh, I don't I don't even know what that means. All I can picture is like a Ziegfeld Follies mm-hmm. right? production. Right, it's, it's kind of a Follies me- on film. That's his stuff, right? Yeah, which really all of these movies were, I mean... Charlie Chaplin's very vaudevillian and the yes. the slapstick and yeah. and all that kind of stuff. His comedy. But I think it's interesting to consider that that's when Modern Times comes out, right? It comes out mm-hmm. when the Busby Berkeley musicals were probably some of the main attractions at the box office, right? And also talkies have taken over completely. Mm-hmm. And he comes out with this movie, which goes against the grain in so many ways. So talking about the the food eating machine, food is a really interesting motif in this film. So it starts with the food eating machine, right? Which is this stupid ass machine that they make to like feed people. It, like it holds like a corn on the cob and up to your mouth and you eat it. Right? And it's hilarious. It's hilarious. And watching the behind the scenes, apparently he, Chaplin, operated it with a hand crank on the side. Yeah, so cool. Like underneath the table. Yeah. It's brilliant. So funny, right? Yeah, I love that. I love the little shovel. It just like shovel, it like pushes the food, the piece of food into your mouth. I love that. But then it also pushes, right, the nuts, the nuts and bolts get put yeah. on the plate when they're trying yeah. to fix yeah. the machine. Mm-hmm. And then he gets fed, literally fed these, the pieces of the machine. <laughs> I don't know how you would interpret that scene besides just being hilarious, but it's it's dehumanizing, right? And it's taking the joy out of like human earthly pleasures like food mm-hmm. and it's mechanizing it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he's totally dehumanized because they just they pick him out of the line and then they make him test it out for them. Yeah. But food comes up throughout the film. So like what are some other examples you guys can think of? The one that comes to mind like in contrast to that is when he's the assistant repairing the machine a little bit later in the film. Yeah. The main mechanic guy is stuck in the machine and his head is sticking out. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, it's lunchtime. And then the tramp like stops and he starts to eat. And the guy's like, but I'm here. I'm in the machine. And the tramp's like, well, this is lunchtime. Like, I got to <laughs> eat my lunch. And it's yep. in that situation, it's not the eating that's right distorted it's the like when you can eat and what's a priority in the time of like in your day yes yeah yeah and then he feeds the lunch to the man (laughs) (laughs) right yeah right and and early in the film right before the feeding machine scene the tramp is with the the man next to him on the assembly line but the tramp is you know, still shaking and still in the mode of being on the assembly line. Yeah. Almost sits in his soup and then picks it up to hand it to him, but because he's still shaking, yeah. ends up spilling the soup everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, that's funny. It's slapstick, but it's also really upsetting. Like, that's sad. It's yeah. so sad. <laughs> yeah. Chaplin really does play that line between the comedy and the tragedy of it. And yes, that's yeah. so good. But also when we first meet Paula Goddard, the very first scene when we meet her character, she's stealing mm-hmm. bananas, right? Yeah. <laughs> and she's, like, got her mm-hmm. knife in her mouth, and you've got this great close-up on her face, and she looks so beautiful, and then she's yeah. tossing the bananas to the children. And, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and we see them later when they find, you know, the ha- quote-unquote house 
but basically just the falling down like little building that they move into and make into a home for themselves and you know she cuts up a sandwich and she cuts like tries to make a breakfast and packs him a lunch but of course like the the slices of bread are huge it's like you almost can't eat it yep and then what brings them together is that she tries to steal bread right exactly and then when he wants to be arrested again later what does he do he takes like the cafeteria tray <laughs> yeah. piles it up mm-hmm. with food eats it and refuses to pay yeah right mm-hmm. yeah because he knows that that'll get him arrested And there's also that moment when they're in the department store Mm -hmm. and they run into the other people, the burglars. Yeah. Bill. Big Bill. Yeah. And the tramp, like, discovers that they're doing that just because they're hungry. Mm -hmm. The desperation and the tragedy of it isn't played for laughs, right? It's very, it's a moment of of reality. And Chaplin handles it very respectfully, right? He doesn't depict them as burglars in the end. And neither is the tramp and neither is the gamine, Paulette Goddard, right? These are desperate people doing what they have to do. And it's the cops and the wealthy who are depicted as like the morally bankrupt people in this Mm -hmm. universe. And remember when he has the dream and he imagines himself as like a wealthy homeowner? Yeah. And how just walking through the room, he can reach out out the window and eat some grapes <laughs> and he can get yes. like every different window and door there's a different type of fruit that he can just reach out and eat yep and there's mm-hmm. a cow yeah. that walks right up to his door and he can have yep. fresh milk and <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah this idea of just having access to those kinds of things and that they're just right at your house like that's the life yep yeah and then the scene where that feels out of place but i think yeah, it's more than just for laughs. The scene where he's sitting next to the older, wealthy woman <laughs> and having tea. And then their stomachs start to growl, right? Yes, I yes. laughed out loud at this scene. I did not remember this at all, and I thought it was hilarious. Like, it was so <laughs> funny. And then he has the radio. He, like, because yep. they're so awkward about it, and then he turns on the radio if you are suffering from gastritis don't forget to try and then he turns it right yeah. off <laughs> <laughs> so funny and and there's that scene in the the jail when he's been arrested you know and mm-hmm. kind of shows oh life's a lot better for him when he's yes. in jail and he doesn't yeah. want to leave but they're in the cafeteria you know they're battling over the bread in that too right they yeah the him and his cellmate and then the guy who's next to him is smuggled in cocaine <laughs> but puts it in the salt shaker so then the tramp puts it all over his food <laughs> i think yeah he's all coked up <laughs> i totally forgot that scene too oh Yep. That seems hilarious. I'm surprised they got away with that because this is, this is after the Hays Code 36. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of any other food related things. The one that, I mean, besides the fantasy scene with the shack, I think what also stands out is the singing scene toward the end of the movie when the tramp sings and he's a waiter. Right, so he's waiting on <laughs> these wealthy people in this cafe. And that there's that great so funny. there's that great sequence where he's trying to navigate 
carrying this tray and this huge crowd of dancing people. And all you can see is the tray, right? Because he's lifting it yeah. up. And then you get this kind of shot where he's just this person. He's he's not there. He's just the person carrying the tray. And it's, um, I think for me, it highlights the decadence of their lives as compared to him and the girl, the gamine. And just how he's not seen as a person, right? And how can these people be dancing and living life like this, right? Mm-hmm. When there's this outside reality. Like that's what that kind of symbolized to me. It's funny, right? Because he has to balance it and move through the people. Mm-hmm. But he has to move around them. They, they're they not moving for him, like to give no. him space or excuse yeah. him. It's, it's a whole roast duck, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then it gets caught on the chandelier. Yep. <laughs> the men like pick it up and they start playing football in the crowd of people. Yeah. You know, and it's really, it's upsetting. Do we want to talk about the singing scene now? Sure, yeah. I mean, in the scene with this food, which is kind of our last big food scene, he's he's playing a singing waiter, not just a waiter, a singing waiter. Well, the Gamin has a job as a performer at the restaurant, and then she's like, hey, I got you a job too. Right. You can perform. Yeah, exactly. The Tramp character, by 1936, had existed for over 20 years. So Chaplin had been playing... The Little Tramp in various forms for over 20 years. 1936, silent films have been passe for years now, right? Because we've had talkies for about 10 years, almost. So there's this expectation that Chaplin's going to speak as the Little Tramp. So that whole movie, you're waiting for him to speak, to to hear his voice, because people hadn't really heard his voice. Mm -hmm. Now, some people may have heard Charlie Chaplin on the radio, maybe. But most audience members hadn't heard him. So it's a big moment because Chaplin was, by the time Modern Times came out in the mid-1930s, one of the most famous people in the world, mm-hmm. right? People watch his movies everywhere. So they want to hear his voice. And so he does this, this song. He comes out as the tramp in the cafe. He's supposed to be the singing waiter. And there's that great sequence before where Paulette Goddard is rehearsing with him. And he can't remember any of the lyrics, right? So she says, well, we'll write it down in your cuff. But then he, almost immediately when he gets out into the stage, he like flings his arms and the cuffs come off. So he doesn't have the lyrics anymore, right? So what does he do instead? He does this gibberish song. The words are meaningless, right? And it's supposed to sound kind of French, definitely continental European, kind of old world vibes to this song. But it's gibberish. It doesn't mean anything. Santa la tiusedore, je notre soccafore, je notre citavore, je la tula tilatua. La spinage au la bouchon, cigarette pote bello, si rakish pacaletto, tu le tout la tilatoua. Like I said, it's kind of like a, a troll. It's like a rickroll moment, right? Because people have been waiting <laughs> to hear him, hear what he sounded like, hear him speak. He doesn't speak, he sings. And the song is gibberish. It's absolutely gibberish. He wants the focus to be on 
the physicality, right? And what right. he's conveying otherwise, because he didn't feel comfortable conveying things through through words like that. And it's hilarious. It's so funny. Yeah. And he's singing with an affect, right? Yeah. It's just all these levels of, you know, he's hiding behind so that he doesn't want his yeah. true voice to be there mm-hmm. because that's yeah. not the tramp. Exactly. Yeah. But I can just imagine being so frustrated yeah. <laughs> as an audience member in 1936, right? Yeah. Well, especially you, because you love Charlie Chaplin. You're, I like, do. The biggest Charlie Chaplin fan. I am. I am. But it's, uh, yeah, it's really funny. And he makes it hilarious. And the joke is kind of on the audience <laughs> in a very modern way, right? Yeah, subverting expectations, right? That's like the the key to comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Were people upset by that, or did they love it? Were they like, "This is so Charlie"? I I don't know <laughs> what what the reactions were in general. I think people were disappointed, but people who understood what he was going for appreciated it, just like we do right now, right? But we've also so. heard him speak in other movies, so. That's true. No, it's true. I think, but it's also, um, the film is so brilliant otherwise that this kind of Rickroll moment doesn't bring it down. It's only, it's a a high point in the film, in a sense. But it's not, even if you don't like it, it doesn't take away from the rest of the movie. Because the rest of the movie is done so thoughtfully and is really funny. And like the scene where he says, it's hilarious. He's so funny. And it takes you a, a few seconds to realize it's gibberish because you, and that's also the joke, right? The joke is also on the elite people in this audience, in this cafe, because they're laughing and applauding. And it seems like they don't understand that it's gibberish. They think he's speaking French. So it's also a joke on them, right? <laughs> so he's also making fun yeah. of the rich and the elite. I mean, I see this scene as another, just another brilliant part of it. Yeah. And, and though it is kind of born out of his insecurity and unwillingness to to give mm-hmm. a voice to the tramp. It's it's brilliant the way that the, the tramp is he would rickroll everyone in that cafe, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly yeah. what he should be doing. <laughs> yeah. And of course he does this again in The Great Dictator when he plays Hinkle, mm-hmm. who is the Great Dictator's version of Hitler. He does gibberish German. Yep. And so he's he he's evolving that style as well, and it's it's quite funny in The Great Dictator too. Was this the last Tramp movie? Yes. Okay. Yeah, this is the last Tramp movie. Some people consider The Great Dictator to be adjacent because the Jewish barber is very similar to the Tramp in a lot of ways. Hmm. But the barber in The Great Dictator is not the Tramp, and Chaplin did not intend for him to be the Tramp. Mm-hmm. Modern Times is the last real Little Tramp film. Uh I think it's the perfect send-off for that, like, silent movie era character instead of trying to force him into talkies. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's just, like, the perfect... Yeah. Perfect final movie for this character. Yeah. And the final scene is just... Gorgeous. I I cried when I saw that. God, Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> Jesse, you can you go cuz you brought it up. In the final scene, it's 
the little tramp and the gamine, and they're sitting by the side of the road. They have lost their jobs at the cafe because the police showed up because they found where she was. And so she's being chased by the police for stealing the bread. Can we talk about how weird it is that she's like an adult woman who's being hunted by like the juvenile services police? (laughs) I feel like she's supposed to be younger than she is. So Paulette Goddard was 25 when this was filmed, I think. So she's fully an adult. 26. (laughs) 26. She's a grown woman in this movie. This Um, is like Riverdale. Right, where they're yeah. clearly adults, but right. they're supposed to be teens. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't work if she's a twenty five year old. Like, I, right. I just it think it's funny right. because you do you really do have to kind of straddle that line of like, okay, she's a child, like she's vulnerable, but also she is an adult who yeah. could be doing these jobs and like, right, you know having some kind of relation. But you also don't want to think of her as younger, right? Because there's like a little bit of that. Oh, well, they have yeah. a home together. And <laughs> yeah. So you don't want her to be too young. Like, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not uncomfortable, but it is a little bit like, wait a minute. Right, right. <laughs> no, it's What's true. happening here? Because I don't think she's, she's not meant to be a child, but she's meant to be no. a young adult, I would say, probably like late teens. Right. I don't think she's, right. she's not meant to be 15. Um, right. On the cusp of like, she can be on her own, but right. She's still being chased by her story starts after the stealing the bananas her father is murdered in the street and then she and her sisters are orphaned and the sisters are very little kids or you mm-hmm. know they're like little kids and they're taken away and then she's supposed to be taken away too but she just escapes right i think that without her running from something then that storyline feels a little bit like where's the motivation there so i think you kind of have to have a little bit of weirdness there but that's okay it works i think yeah but you know charlie was also a pervert and a pedophile (laughs) (laughs) which is something we have to talk about right yeah sure (laughs) so like no no, i love i love charlie chaplin's movies but he was incredibly inappropriate with underage girls and a predator in many circumstances it wasn't just one time and it's something that pops up in his movies a lot. It's not quite Woody Allen levels of that, but Ugh. he almost always has a young woman, right, as the counterpart to the tramp if there is one in the movie. So, like in this movie or City Lights, um, I think it's a combination of he was attracted to young women, but also he was very interested in the stories of young people, right? It's like the kid. And so this movie, Modern Times, doesn't work with a fully adult woman as that character, right? It's not going to hammer home the themes that he wants, right? Which is that people get left behind, especially young people in these situations, right? Right. Um, And the tramp is also meant to be kind of ageless in a sense, like he's an adult man, but we really don't know how old he's supposed to be, right? He's kind of like this cartoony character but it's uncomfortable knowing what we know about Chaplin's personal life so did he really like was it like like a Roman Polanski Woody Allen's situation or so he married he married a 16 year old girl when he was I'm looking up the the dates because I don't want to get this wrong so he was 35 and she was 16 what was her name 
Lita Gray. Oh, and they had a very public divorce, right? And that was around the City Lights times. So that's like right before modern times. Yes. He also married Una O'Neill a month after she turned 18. And he was 36 years older than her. Oof. Ooh. Yeah. They are married, you know, for 30, over 30 years, I think, um, until he died. But that is the beginning of their relationship. It's very uncomfortable. And there are other examples, I think. Those are the two main ones. He was also married to Paulette Goddard, right? Uh, they were not married. They, they, were they weren't married. They had a common yeah. law marriage. They told everyone they got married. He married a 17-year-old when he was 29. So all of his wives are underage. Except for, oh, no, he did marry Paulette Goddard. You're right, Annie. Yes, I married. know I'm right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. And she was 26 when they married. So yes. she was, yeah. She's an old lady. And Ooh. so they got married. They did this film together. And then she's also like the female lead in The Great Dictator. And she was 30 when that came out. She said that filming The Great Dictator is what ended their marriage. She was like, he was just such a tyrant to work with. And I, I couldn't live with that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so then they separated. But she's awesome. Paula Goddard. Can we just take one second to reflect on her life? Like, Charlie Chaplin has questionable other relationships, but Paula Goddard's got some really cool other relationships. Like, <laughs> we talk about the men she married <laughs> after Charlie Chaplin. She, I forget, who was her husband right after him? I don't remember. Oh, Burgess Meredith. Burgess yes. Meredith. That's it. Yeah. So she, mm-hmm. And then she marries Eric Maria Remark, the author of All Quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> yep. And they were married for like a while, right? And then they had a huge estate. And after Chaplin is like banned from the US, they both ended yep. up living in what, Switzerland? Was that it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And she was also living there. Yeah. Her final husband, he also had, like, these wild affairs that I didn't know about when I read All Quiet on the Western Front in school. But who else yeah, yeah. was he with, Frankie? Like, uh, Marlena Dietrich. Yes. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I, I bring it up because even though I love I love Chaplin's films, but he was a predator. I, I mean, these are all underage women. And that's one of the things that led to him being exiled from the United States, right? J. Edgar Hoover capitalized on that to to exile him. And I say capitalized on, not because I disagree, but because J. Edgar Hoover didn't actually care about that, right? He just thought Charlie Chaplin was a communist. So he used his underage relationships to exile him. But honestly, there are many people who were doing this in Hollywood at the time. And J. Edgar Hoover didn't care because politically they were allies. Right. He wasn't trying to protect women and children. No. Right. And it's a very interesting moment in the history of Hollywood and the U.S. government. Right. And despite saying he's a philosopher and he had all these amazing ideas, he was he had a lot of moral failings in his personal life. I like every philosopher. What is interesting, you know, and Annie, you watched the Chaplin movie with Robert Downey Jr. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting line in that movie where he's like, one of his friends, I think it was Douglas Fairbanks who said, someone said something like... You mean Kevin Klein in that movie? Yeah. Kevin Klein. <laughs> something like, well, you, you marry all of your girlfriends, right? And he would marry all of them. And so it's a very bizarre thing. I don't know. But important to talk about in the context of his movies, too, because it did influence them. Yeah, absolutely. 
I love that shack scene, the scene where they have that um, fa- shared fantasy of the house they could have mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful. So it's paradise, right? It's the Garden of Eden, right? Where they have food and everything that they could ever want. And who casts them out of that paradise? Who casts them out of Eden in that scene? Do you remember? No. It's a cop. A police officer comes up and taps him on the shoulder. Oh. And then they have to come back out of the fantasy. Isn't that great? Yeah. We, we'd never talked about the final scene. Oh, right. So that's what we were doing when we started all this, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So like that scene where they have a fantasy is this paradise. It's Eden. They're cast out. And then I, I read another interesting analysis of the cafe scene where he sings where that is also a kind of a, a paradise or an, a fall from paradise, where the scene where they're backstage and they're practicing, you slowly start to hear the music encroach, right? Mm-hmm. Once he leaves and actually speaks for the first time, it's the fall from paradise, right? Where then the police come in and it's all shattered again. Him speaking, it's kind of the last shattering of that divide. And then after that, when they flee the cafe, they find themselves on the side of the road again. And the gamine is crying. And she says, we finally had something. We finally had employment together. We finally had gainful employment and opportunity. And now it's gone. We have to flee. And she's crying and she's crying. He says, buck up. Never say die. We'll get along. And then he tries to get her to smile. And that's when the song comes in, right? Which had been a motif throughout the movie, but this is when it really starts to to come in strong, smile. And so he says, buck up, never say die, we'll get along. And then they stand up and she's still upset. And so he grabs her arm and he mimes smiling again. Uh, uh And he starts like trying to make her laugh and then she starts to laugh and then she smiles and they take off down the road arm in arm together. And the camera just stays, right? And then it slowly watches them go down this endless road kind of desolate together. And that's the end of the movie. And it's a really bittersweet ending, right? It really hits, especially as an adult, it hits so hard because you know what they know in that moment, which is that this is not a happy ending. It's a hopeful ending, but it's not a happy ending, right? They're going to have to keep struggling to get these basics of life and they're not just going to find that paradise. That's not what Chaplin wants you to think about their future, right? But they have each other. And it's an interesting ending because it's perhaps the only time that the tramp ends arm in arm with someone facing that reality. Mm, yeah, he's not alone. Right, he's not alone. And in almost all the other movies, he ends up alone. And you know, at the end of a tramp movie, well, there's gonna be another tramp adventure Right? He's going to keep running in, into conflict with the police. He's going to lose his job and they're going to be hijinks. And you know, you know it's never going to end for him. Right, This is the, his cycle. This is the first, perhaps the first and only time where he ends arm in arm with a partner who's going to take that on with him. And I think that's mm-hmm. a really fitting end to the character of the tramp. Right? Like even talking about it gives you goosebumps, right? And the smile motif, you know, the song which is such an incredible song, plays when she comes to pick him up from jail. (laughs) And it plays when they have their little house that's falling apart. And it plays Mm -hmm. in these moments where, right, he feels 
love. Yeah. And and he feels mm-hmm. hope. And so to end with that, where he's like, well, you feel that hope too, because at least we have each other. Yeah. 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 Is that the last intertitle card that in a Charlie Chaplin movie? In a tramp movie. Um, in a tramp. If there's an inner title, I don't think there are any in Great Dictator because it's entirely a talkie. So, yeah, yeah it might be his last inner title. Wow. A final, like, tribute to the silent era and, like, moving into yeah. talkies. Like, that's yeah. such a Beautiful. sweet. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Thinking about that inner title, it's just in that ending is... It's beautiful because you know that it's not a happy, happy ending. They don't get everything that they want. And a lot of movies, especially at the time, would end like that. Right. And and what's beautiful about it is that it's more realistic. It's more human. It's more intimate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. This is a sort of these individual people. It's not necessarily just what they represent in terms of archetypes, but it's a very intimate ending where it's just them and that close up. And then it pans back and you get them leaving. It's almost kind of like, <laughs> it's going to sound really crazy. Kind of like Fleabag. Mm. Yeah. Where she turns around and she goes, no, camera, you don't have to follow me. I'm okay. Uh, I'm going to be okay. Right. Oh, I even love though, that comparison. Yes. Even though it's not perfect, even though I'm in pain right now, I don't, I'm okay. Right. And it's the same yes. feeling you get with this movie where you know, the heartache, you know, everything, but they're going to be okay. Oh, I love that comparison, Frankie. <laughs> <laughs> I can find a way to compare anything to the Chaplin movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We didn't even talk about how he composes or he composed the music for his movies. Yeah. Like Smile. Smile. So just throwing that out there, he was a composer. And for example, Modern Times, he composed the entire score to Modern Times. He might be the first real auteur the way that we think of it today, where he had a single central vision and executed it in all these different ways. In a lot of ways, he set the stage for that, right? Also because he helped found United Artists, the production company that was about taking control away from the giant houses like Paramount and uh, MGM. With the composing, he worked with a lot of other musicians and he would, and they're not credited, although they arguably (gasps) should be credited as co-composers. And he had them sign contracts saying that only he could be considered to be an author of the work. (gasps) Oh boy. He couldn't read or write music. So he would sort of have these other people assisting to translate everything um, and do music. So it's it's kind of... That's a bummer. So Limelight won Best Original Dramatic Score. Okay. I don't know. There was some, like, drama about it, about how, like, um, like in the movie, in the credits, he's credited for being the composer, like, the original compositions by Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. But um, with the Academy Award, it was awarded to him and, like, two or three other people Mm. just because of the technicality of like they were actually involved and so they did get some kind of credit even if it's not like in the actual movie right which is kind of interesting wow even he exploited workers (laughs) oh yeah 
That's a bummer. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's no, how it's it goes. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about just how much Frankie loves Charlie Chaplin. I feel like we have to talk about it. You know, back <laughs> when we did the Talented Mr. Ripley episode, we did not go into just how deeply Frankie loves Matt Damon. That's because he's canceled now. <laughs> I think we have to bring up some highlights from Frankie's love for Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> highlights? Okay. Oh, boy. The Halloween costume. Frankie oh, Day. Yes. When is the tramp for Halloween? I think we have to share a photo yeah. of that on social media. Do we have any? Please say no. Of course we do. Oh my god, of course I have some. Oh I have them. I have them. That's a highlight. Another highlight was your senior quote in your senior yearbook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what was it? Yeah, the quote. God, I <laughs> Life is a tragedy when seen in close-up, but a comedy in long shot. That's such a great quote. Still a great line. Still, I mean, it's perfect. But <laughs> yeah. Jesse, what was your quote? Was it, why am I thinking it's like Black Adder or something? What was it? It Because it, it was Black, Black Adder. Adder. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, make love and be merry for tomorrow you may come down with some disgusting skin disease <laughs> <laughs> i think you know both of them the same the same yeah. dimensions yeah that's good for annie what was yours do you either of you remember no it was come with a frog something nope <laughs> <laughs> it's a great guess kermit the frog here <laughs> that was Oh, so good. <laughs> no, I don't remember. What was it? It was Yogi Berra. The future ain't what it used to be. <laughs> so moody. Annie. So teen angst. Oh, <laughs> like, <boy>. So good. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, it was better than when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Which was the other <laughs> thing I was thinking of. So. That's true. <laughs> um, I also won a... Uh, for, so in college, I was in the honors program, and we had to take a year-long philosophy course. And I wrote my paper on the philosophy of Charlie Chaplin's films. So looking at kind of what we're talking about in this episode, so more general philosophical themes, but also how it related to his actual politics. Mm. So this idea was Chaplin a communist. 
So that was my paper it was on. And I won the honors program best paper in the department for that year. With that paper. <laughs> People uh-huh. are writing like, actual papers about real things. <laughs> so pretty proud of that one. And you were like, one day I will make a podcast. <laughs> I will do an episode <laughs> on this award-winning paper. <laughs> so was he, was he, what did you come down to? I think he, I, I, I mean, I can't remember what I argued in that paper. I think it was one of those like, well, no, but it's more complicated than that sort of answers. Modern Times, is this an anti-capitalist movie? I think so. I think so. I've, and it's hard to just label him a communist because I think I think that that was and is can be quite limiting to just label something like that. And of course, he never came out and said that he was. But if you look at his films, Modern Times is a great example. Would I call him a communist? Not necessarily, but I would say that he definitely had socialist ideologies. So the scenes with the strikes and when he's arrested, the, the tramp is arrested for being a part of a communist strike. But even that scene, he seems to be making fun of the strike. Like, the tramp just ends up in this parade, and it's kind of like a mindless glob of people. He seems to be kind of mocking that a little bit, too. I think that he he didn't believe in being an ideologue, someone who just blindly follows an ideology, right? So I think that Mm -hmm. that is kind of the criticism there. Also opening with the, the sheep. Right. Yeah. So I think that that's why it's complicated. Right. So I don't necessarily think that he's making fun of people on strike, but I think he's he's making fun of any sort of blind following mm-hmm. of something. Right? He's very much about being an independent thinker and heart like and honoring your inherent human dignity. Right. And if you're just kind of following in whatever context, whether it's in a communist context or in a fascist context, as in the great dictator, he wants to turn that on its head. Definitely progressive and socialist themes that he's dealing with in the context of the Mm -hmm. Great Depression, right? Is he completely anti-technology? Absolutely not, because he used technology to create his films, right? He was very interested Mm -hmm. in that, but I think he was anti, again, anything that takes away the, the humanity in people. That's great. Love it. You deserve an award for that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll drop my cash app in the (laughs) show description notes. (laughs) All right, so recommendations. My recommendation is a book. It's a book published only a, a few years after the release of Modern Times. And like Modern Times, it is a contemporary depiction and reflection of America during the Great Depression. So my recommendation is the 1939 novel, The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. I was thinking about recommending this. Ah, no. So good. I won't, I have something so, else, but this is, I love the mind meld. This is great. Like, <laughs> good, good. Because Steinbeck was also a humanist, uh, like Chaplin. Yeah. And I think that they have similar sensibilities in, in how they approach this material. So if you liked modern times, you liked the, I don't even know, if you if, like the sentiment, but but realism of modern times, and I think you would appreciate The Grapes of Wrath. If you're looking for less comedy, more misery. Yes. <laughs> more, more close up, less long shot. Yeah, <laughs> but it's also about, you know, people, ordinary people searching for dignity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and supporting each other in the face of 
incomprehensible situation. So that's that's why I think people would enjoy The Grapes of Wrath. Well, it's like Modern Times is a classic of cinema, Grapes of Wrath. It's a classic of literature. Yeah. Um, and it's also worth checking out Chaplin's autobiography if you're interested more about what he has to say about filmmaking and his own philosophies, not just what we have to say about them. <laughs> so I have two recommendations. Um, they're both sort of about the silent era. Mm-hmm, and cool. the first one is Singing in the Rain because mm. it's such a fun movie. <laughs> and <laughs> I think it's a very, it's a comedy, right? And it's kind of a different take on the transition between silent and talkies. So and I think it's fun. Yeah. So go watch that, even though it has Gene Kelly in it, who's a little bit insufferable, but that's okay. What? That's fun. <laughs> oh my goodness. You don't think he's insufferable? What? With his, like, <laughs> his solos? What? I, th- I think that there is one number in that movie that could absolutely be cut. His, like, dream number, where he's like, wouldn't it be great if we could do that? That's my favorite part. He's a dancer. He's a dancer. He always, it's in his contract that every single movie of his has to have some elaborate solo Because he's a dancer. Oh, my God. It's too, it's always too much. He's one of the best of those hundreds of thousands of dancers. Like, he deserves his time in the sun. Yes. That's right. (laughs) Now, that's a good one because it's also about the transition, right? And yeah. exactly what we're talking about where Chaplin was insecure about not only his voice, but also what that would mean for him in Hollywood and as a filmmaker. Yeah. This movie really captures some of those tensions, too. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting, right? And then he sings, right? Same mm-hmm. in Singing in the Rain. He chooses to yeah. sing. And that's also how they do it in The Artist, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's so that he chooses to sing at the end. And do a musical. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Look at our right. connections. Way to go. Nice. That's fun. Woo. So the second one is a filmmaker that I didn't know about before. He's an African-American filmmaker from the same silent period. And he was the most prolific filmmaker of the era. And his name is Oscar Michaud. Yep. And I like sort of fell into an online like Google hole watching clips of him and like little short YouTube docs about him and I wasn't able to watch any of his actual films and they're they're different from the silent movies that I always think of like Chaplin or Buster Keaton because they're not comedies they're they're dramas but he just seems like such an interesting person historical figure and his movies seem really interesting so I do believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but Paul Robeson was in some of his films. Yes, Paul Robeson was in Body and Soul, which was a Oscar Michaud's uh, 1925 movie. So that's a recommendation that I want to learn more about. So self-recommendation and also recommendation for anybody else. I think Criterion Channel has a collection of his work. They do. Yep. Great. Annie? Okay, Okay, so I'm going to go with something a little different. And I'm going to do a movie that came out in 2018, directed by Boots Riley, called Sorry to Bother You. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is is different. This is a different (laughs) option. Okay, yes. But I was thinking, you know, when I saw Sorry to Bother You, it was so different than I thought it was going to be. 
It mm-hmm. subverted my expectations. It's about more of work in modern times, but for today, right? And Boots, what Boots Riley does in that movie, it's so inventive. It's their fantasy elements. It's grappling with similar issues. It's about a telemarketer who's black and puts on a white voice to become successful. But there's also like union and labor movement things going on in the film. Similar themes, right? It's it's tackling similar ideas, but in an updated way that is also talking about not just like disenfranchisement of workers and like the exploitation of workers, you know, the dehumanization that comes with capitalism, but it's also about race. It's a bizarre movie. And I think, you know, modern times Charlie Chaplin was doing some really inventive stuff. He was doing really yeah. new, modern, different for 1936. And I think Boots Riley's yeah. doing that for like, 2018. Great. Yeah. That's, that's a cool way to think about it. Starring Lakeith Stanfield. Yes. Yeah. And Tessa Thompson. It's like a Gamine yep. character. But mm-hmm. also the whole cast is like great. Like Forrest Whitaker is in it. Danny mm-hmm. Glover. Um, Army Hammer. Army Hammer, who's (laughs) over. (laughs) Everyone's favorite cannibal. (laughs) He's the Henry Ford character. (laughs) Yes. So, I don't know. Did you guys see it? Do you have thoughts on Sorry to Bother You? All I can say is it is one of the strangest movies I've ever seen, but you're exactly right that it it has its finger on the pulse of very contemporary concerns, I think, in a similar way that Chaplin did with Modern Times. Exactly. Yeah. Great recommendations, guys. It's awesome. Yeah. Very, very wide range of materials. <laughs> also, everyone who's listening, watch out for a pic of Frankie dressed as Charlie Chaplin on our social media. Woo! Oh, <laughs> 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 We'll give you that Thank little gift. Thank you for joining my last episode of Cinema Silo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. <laughs> well, we have to do a Halloween-themed post, right? Yeah, actually, oh, that's, yeah. that's fair enough. Yeah, any pop culture movie-related costumes, that's fair. So good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and tuning in. That wraps up our series on labor. We will be coming back with a free reel-in episode. And we'll tell you then what our next theme is going to be. Check out our show notes and episode description on our website, cinemasilopod.com. Be sure to follow us and engage with us on Twitter and Instagram at cinemasilopod. See you next time in the silo.